0: Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you've been around Wildwood the last month or so, you know that we're in the midst of a series um, called Walk in Love, a series that is walking us through Uh, the book of Romans, chapters 13, 14, and the first part of 15. And the theme of those verses is really that we would live out our lives in in a loving way towards those around us. Uh, If you've been at Wildwood, the last a little while, you know that we've been walking systematically through the book of Romans. Uh, If you have come sometime in the last year, you might think that we only have this book in our Bible, Um, but we've been walking through this since last September. Uh, We're now to Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23, and I'm excited for us to take a look at those verses together today. But before we we look at Romans 14 together, I wanted to ask you a question, and the question I want to ask is this. I want you to think in your mind of the nearest grocery store to your house or to your your dorm room or to your apartment, wherever you live. Think of the nearest grocery store to where you live. Okay, you got it in your mind? Now I want you to think about this. How long would it take you to walk there? How long would it take you to walk to the grocery store nearest to where you live? Now, that may be a journey that you have taken hundreds of times. And that may be a journey that you've never taken, but but my guess is, at some level, you could approximate how long it would take you to walk to that grocery store. Now, why is that? How is it that we could could have some idea how long it would take us to to get to the nearest grocery store on foot? Well, the reason why that is is because we have a, a, a pace in which we normally walk. There's a comfortable pace, and we have walked enough in our lives that we know generally how long it takes us to walk from here to there so that we could be able to approximate how long it would take us to get even to a place that we've never been before. Now, let me ask you another question. How long would it take you to make that same walk with someone else? Now, if you're thinking, you might answer that question this way. It depends. It depends on who I'm walking with. If you were to make that walk with Wang Jin, the 2016 gold medalist in the Rio Games in the 20-kilometer walk, you might get there a little faster than you would otherwise. I mean, some of you may be some impressive mall walkers in this group, but probably none of you could keep up with a great Wong Jin, right? Um, So you might get there a little faster if you went on the journey with him. But if you were to take that journey and your companion was your friend's two-year-old, you might get there a little slower. Let me say it a different way. You should get there a little slower if you tried to make that walk with your friend's two-year-old. Because the goal when you go someplace with someone is not just to get there. The goal is to get there together. Together. And if you were to take a walk with a two-year-old, you would adjust your pace so that you could make sure you get there together. That might mean holding hands at one point in the journey. It might mean stopping to tie a shoe, stopping to pick them up, carrying them a little bit along. It might mean letting them walk a little bit because they just want to do it themselves, but you stay close beside or close behind just to offer some protection. Um, If you were to make that journey, And you were to make that journey with a two-year-old, you would slow down so that you could get there together. Now, friends, why do I I open with that story today? I open with that story because it's a very common motif in the Christian life to, to call the Christian life a walk, a journey. From the moment we trust Christ as our Savior until the moment we enter into eternity, that is a walk, a journey in this life. But here's the thing. The goal of the Christian life is not just to get there. The goal of the Christian life is to get there together. And we see that very clearly in the book of Romans chapter 14. In Romans 14, we have an encouragement for us to adjust our pace so that we don't just make it through our lives, but we make it through our lives together in a way that is loving and honoring and serving to one another. And so today we're going to to see more of what that looks like and be challenged in our thinking and our practice of the Christian life a little bit, challenged in our walk, by looking at the book of Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23. And so if you've got a Bible, I would invite you to take it out and open to Romans 14, beginning in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one under the seat back in front of you. You can grab that and pull it out and open it. Um, We get into our Bibles every week here, would encourage you to bring one or to pick one up. Uh, We have some free ones out on a table in the gathering hall if you don't have one uh, because this is God's Word. It's wonderful that we have a chance to read it together. Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, the apostle writes and says this, he says, "'Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer.'" But rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil." For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats." Now, in these ten verses today, we're going to see three things about getting there together. Three things about what it looks like for us to walk in love together. The first thing that we're going to see is this. We're going to see that we're going to see ethics as effects and not objects. Ethics as effects and not objects. Now that is hard to say. Uh, but it's even harder at times to live. Where do we see that in this passage? Uh, It's it's interesting, Uh, friends, we're going to walk our way through this passage and each movement of this message today rather than going sequentially just from the first verse to the last because it's almost as though the Apostle Paul is winding a kite string of truth here. So he's coming back again and again to certain themes. And The first theme that he comes to is that we need to view ethics as effects and not just objects. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me just think of it this way. We live in a world that is infatuated with things. We live in a world that is infatuated with things. We want to define everything by the things. We want to define people by what they wear or where they live or what they drive the office that they sit in. We, we want to define things by things. We want to define people by things. And this is true even in our Christian lives. We want to define ethics many times by things. We want to say that the world is made up of objects that are inherently good or are inherently evil, that there are certain things that are always good and there are certain things that are always evil. But what Paul seems to be indicating in this passage is that the world is not made up of things that are inherently good and inherently evil. Now, while we may think of some things that we can imagine only being evil, like an altar to Satan or something like that could only be seen as evil, many of the objects in our life have no intrinsic ethical value in and of themselves. They take their meaning, they take their impact by the effect that they have in us and others? What are some examples of the things in our world that are neither good nor bad but can have effects on those around them? Well, One of those things that we might think about is alcohol. He mentions it here even in this, in this section. It's possible for us to think that alcohol is inherently evil, and we might think of that because of its impact on somebody that we know or in our own life or our own family or a friend that we've seen some devastating effects that alcohol has had in their life. But one of the things that we see from this passage is that alcohol itself is neither inherently good or inherently evil, though it can have an effect on people and it can affect them differently. Our ethics need to allow for the effect to be included, not just centered on the object. Does that make sense? We think about some other areas of our life beyond just alcohol that we might want to attribute an intrinsic value to. And, you know, sometimes these examples are are funny in a place like Wildwood because this is a place that has typically been very gracious on many objects and things. But there might be some that would look at cards and say that cards or certain games of cards would be inherently evil. But we need to remember that the ethic is not just in the object, but it's in the effect that those cards might have on someone, not just inherently in themselves. We might think of it as it relates to um, musical instruments or musical styles. It's possible that that you might have grown up in a tradition where certain instruments were just not the right instrument, or certain musical styles were just not the right musical style. That somehow there was an ethical value that was attributed to. You know, this kind of music, classical over rock, or rock over rap, or rock over classical. Somehow that there is a, an inherent value. I mean, some of you, in, in some environments, based on how you grew up, you walked in and you saw the drum on the stage today, and you thought, oh no, the slippery slope. See, it's possible that we might attribute to certain things ethical value, but remember, it's not just in the object, but it's in the effect. Think about uh, even attire. You may have clothes in your house, clothes in your life that you call your Sunday clothes. You know, I do. I'll be be—I'll be honest with you. I don't wear this jacket anywhere but here. Part of it's because my life is really boring, and this is where I am most of the time. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but But I don't wear this very many other places. Now, here's a question. Is this jacket holy? Not unless I poke a hole in it. That's a terrible joke. But y'all laugh better than first service, so I appreciate the the grace and the sympathy you're you're showing me. Um it's, it's not in the object. You know, at the end of this month, there's a there's a holiday. You aware of that? There's a holiday at the end of the month. On October the 31st. I don't know if you were aware. In first service, I had a little six-year-old girl in the front row that yelled it out for all of us to, to, to know. She knew it was coming, right? Um, it's possible for us to attribute value to a day on the calendar as negative or positive intrinsically in the day. And yet we need to remember that our ethics are tied to the effects, not to the objects themselves. Paul makes this case uh, quite clearly throughout this entire section as he he wraps this kite string of truth around and around again, uh, around this idea. Uh, We see him begin this, this tone in verse 14, the first part. He says, "'I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself.'" It says, I'm persuaded that nothing is unclean in itself. What he's he's saying is that there is no object that is inherently evil in and of itself. He, He mentions this in context in the first 12 verses of chapter 14 that Pastor Bruce walked us through last week. We saw a lot of things that were holdovers from the Jewish religion, attributing value to certain days, not eating certain foods. What... Paul is is indicating here is that certain days on the calendar or certain kinds of food are, are not inherently good or inherently evil. He says in verse 14, I know and am persuaded that nothing is unclean in itself and the object of it all. Verse 16 makes a similar point. He says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Now this is one of those verses that bugs us a little bit because it sure sounds like at least some portion of our ethics are relative. And, and we don't like relatives. We might like those that we're related to, but we don't like things that are relative and associated with our Christian faith. It sounds very liberal. But the reality is that there's a portion of Christian ethics that are absolutely tied to the effects on other people, and they can vary from person to person and situation to situation. The very same thing, verse 16 tells us, that one could regard as good, another could regard as evil. We need to have space within our ethical conversation as believers for understanding that the effects of something matter, not just the object of it. Second part of verse 20 continues this theme. He says, Everything is indeed clean. He just is making this point over and over again in this. Passage and Really, what he's highlighting through those admonitions is he's talking about the liberty that we have as Christians. We have a certain amount of liberty as Christians to, to, to live out and do certain things that would fall into some kind of a gray area of life. But he doesn't just talk about the liberty that we have, he also talks about how some of those things that we are able to do, that we have liberty to do as Christians, some of those same, same things can cause another to sin. The second part of verse 14 makes this clear. He says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. In other words, if a believer in Christ has a conviction that doing something is sin and then they do it, guess what, they've sinned. Even if that thing was not inherently sinful in and of itself, if we have a conviction against alcohol that we should, nobody should take a drink, that I should not take a drink, it would be sin to take a drink, and then I take a drink. Guess what? Regardless of whatever theology book you share with me, it was a sin for me to drink that. That's what Paul says. It's possible for an activity that one has liberty to do based on their conviction would be a sin for another to do based on their conviction. Verse 20 makes it clear in the, in the third party says, it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's possible to to stumble in an object that others have liberty to consume or to do, but would be sin for us to participate based on our conviction about that. Verse 23 says it this way. It says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. There's a a relative nature to our ethics. On the gray areas, the areas with which God has not spoken clearly, to say, this is always wrong or this is always right. There are a number of other areas in our life where it is possible for one person to have the freedom to do it and another to not. And we just need to remember that and to know that. Now, if you're wondering what some of those areas are or the things that we could have conviction upon, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go to our website and under the, the worship setting, there is... Uh, our messages are on there, the audio, and you can listen to Pastor Bruce's message from fourteen one through 12 from last week. It will help illustrate that concept even more. But we need to remember that our ethics have this component that is effects and not just objects. Now, a second truth that I think we need to see as we begin to put this, this together in these verses is this, that we need to focus on the eternals not the externals. Focus on the eternals and not the externals. Again, it is so possible for us to want to focus on the externals of our life and the lives of others. We want to think through all of the externals, the way that we live our life and the decisions that we've made on a number of issues of liberty, and we want to take our decisions that we've made on those and make some kind of scorecard that shows whether or not we're good or we're better than somebody else. We we are consumed at time by the externals, and we think that the Christian life is all about keeping a list of externals, forming convictions and keeping them. But the reality is that God is doing something beyond just the externals. God is, is doing a work in this world that goes beyond just redecorating the outside. He is renovating the inside. He's not just sending His Spirit into the world to renovate a place. He's sending his spirit into the world to redeem a heart and to empower us to live in a different way. We see this laid out for us clearly in verse 17. Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Now, one thing I just want to say about this, I think this is um, sarcasm. Now, what does sarcasm look like in the original Greek? I don't know, but maybe like this. Um, I think the Apostle Paul was maybe using a little bit of sarcasm here because he's he's making a statement that people would almost certainly agree with. He, He says here in verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, to which everybody who is redeemed in Christ would say, of course not. Of course not. Jesus didn't come and bleed and die on the cross so that I would not eat pork. Jesus didn't come to bleed and die on the cross so that I would just revere a particular day. Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected from the grave so that God's fruit, that God's character might be supernaturally manifested in my heart and life so that the world will be impacted in a loving and entirely different way because of God's work inside of me and inside of you. It's not a matter of us just eating and drinking and keeping certain days and having convictions on things and having the right list or the wrong list and all those things. God is up to something way bigger than that, way more than just the externals. God is working some eternals, and we are called to focus on them. Verse 17 says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but what is it about? It's of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What God is is doing in this world and what he is producing in our lives is something that goes far beyond objects. You know, what does righteousness look like? I mean, I can't go to Walmart this afternoon and buy a box of righteousness. I can't go buy it as an, an object out here. But righteousness can look so many different ways as it flows through my life. As my life is connected to God, connected to His purposes, and as I'm trusting in Him, the Spirit can produce a quality of our life that looks like what God's plan for the world is, that looks like God's plan for relating to others. What that looks like can come through our lives as the Spirit of God leads us into righteousness. That's way more of what the kingdom of God is like besides just what we're eating and drinking. What does peace look like? Again, I I can't go to Target this afternoon and buy a a bottle of peace. And yet peace is something that that God produces in and through us, where two people that otherwise might be at war, two people that otherwise might be in conflict, find harmony. They lay down their arms against one another and they, they join arms together. Because a peace is created. The kingdom of God is like peace. The kingdom of God is, is like joy. What does a jar of joy look like? We, we don't know, but we, we know when we experience it. We see it on the face of another. We, we feel it as this, this contentment in our hearts regarding our circumstances and what God has for us. See, the kingdom of God wants to produce within us things that go way beyond the externals and focus on some eternal fruits that he is producing in and through us through the work of the Holy Spirit. See, friends, we are not just to think of objects, but we are to think of the effects of those objects in our lives as we focus on the eternals but not the externals. Now, here's an interesting thing. When I share all of that with you at some level, at some level, uh, you begin to go, okay, so the, the the appropriate application of this would be to tell the most conservative people among us to lighten up. Don't you, don't you think that? I mean, if I was going to write this based on those two principles right there, the ethics as, as effects and not objects, that we're to focus on the eternals and not the externals, my next point you might expect would be, so if you have a lot of convictions about things. Knock it off so that we can experience liberty. But that's not what it says. What it says is something far more beautiful. It's a call for us to walk at a pace together. To slow down and to gather together as a full body of Christ, those that want to run ahead in their liberty and those that are walking a slower pace in their conviction, and we are called to walk together. The way he says it in the passage is this We are not to tear down what Jesus is building up. Don't tear down what Jesus is building up. Now, it's interesting as this is, is laid out for us in these verses, he's going to talk about the impact that our life has on another. And, and as he does so, I want you to, to see the severity of our impact on others. What that does is it helps us to understand something about what he's getting ready to tell us. He's talking about actions that we do, liberty that we express, that actually causes another believer to sin. Not liberty that we express that there would be some kind of disagreement over that. I'll give you an example. you know, if, if David's favorite music was rap music, um, I don't know if it is. We've not had this conversation, but let's just say for a moment that it is. If David's favorite music is rap music and my favorite music is country and western, um, it's not, by the way, but let's, we're having fun. So let's imagine that we have this kind of a thing. Um, we have a disagreement over that. This is, this is not talking about two people who have a disagreement over that. What, what this passage is talking about is if that disagreement leads to someone sinning. In other words, if, if David so felt that country and western music was somehow inherently evil and it was sinful to listen to, and yet when I pick him up to go uh, to lunch on Tuesday, if all I'm playing is Toby Keith, then I am causing him to sin by placing him in that environment. It's not a simple disagreement. It's causing him to sin. We are called, friends, to be mindful of those around us and to realize that the decisions that we make in our lives have consequences in the lives of others. Listen to how he describes our lives and the lives of others. One one other thing to note before we see that, throughout this section, you'll see him use the word brother. He's talking here about connections and relationships with other Christians, not just people in general. He says in, in verse 13, he says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. That's tied back to what we looked at last week. But he says, But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. This idea of a stumbling block or a hindrance is the, is the admission that our lives can cause another to stumble into sin. You know, in our in our house uh, this last week, we had a box in our garage that had some components in it from Monroe Elementary School's jogathon, and that box got placed on the stairs going from our garage from our house down into our garage. Now, that box was in a location on those stairs that it was not in the path that my wife takes to get to her car. But it was in the path that I take to get to my car. And so I walked out and I tripped over that box. Not once, but twice. Now you gotta be asking yourself, why didn't I move it the first time? I don't know. But I left it there and then I tripped on it again. I think that story just helps illustrate for us that there are things that we can do, liberty that we can express, that cause no problem for one person, but are in the path of another. We are to not express the liberty that we have in Christ in such a way that it would cause someone to stumble or to be trapped. Hindrance is like a mouse trap or an animal trap, to be trapped that they might fall into sin. Verse 15, he says it this way, he says, If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Again, the the idea there is that our life and the, the liberty that we express, the choices that we make, can actually grieve our brother. Why would we behave in such a way that would lead to their destruction. I don't think it's talking here about their spending an eternity in hell, but it's talking about tearing down the spiritual growth in their lives. Why would you exhibit your liberty by what you watch or what you listen to or what you wear or what you drink or what you eat in such a way that it would damage your brother in Christ for whom he died? Why would you do such a thing? Verse 19 says it this way. He he talks not about the negative here, but about the positive. He says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In other words, why use your liberty to tear down or create an opportunity for sin in your brother's life? Why not use your liberty for an opportunity to love your brother and to build them up? What does that look like? Verse 21 lets us know. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. In other words, we would restrict our own freedoms in order to build up our brother. William Mounts, in his commentary on this section, says this about this idea. He says, while freedom is a right, it is not a guide For conduct. This is super important for us to see, friends, because as Americans, we're freedom junkies, aren't we? We love freedom. We want to know what all we can do. And as Christians living in a country like America, we want to know the boundaries. What what am I able to get away with? He says, Our freedom is, is not a guide for our conduct. What we can do, what is permissible, is not what we should ask. It's not the right question. He says, Instead, love serves that purpose, love is our guide rights are to be laid aside in the interest of love. As it relates to the ethical areas of our life, how can we make decisions that would lead to the building up of our brother or sister in Christ? Now, at a a principled level, this resonates with you, doesn't it? At a principled level, this, this makes sense to you. Because if I were to ask you this, I mean, think of somebody in your life that you want to see grow spiritually. For some of you it would be your spouse, for others it would be a roommate, a friend at school, somebody you work with, a sibling, your parents, your children. There's somebody in your life that you want to see grow spiritually. Now let me ask you, what would you give, what would you give for them to grow spiritually? In a very crude way, what would you pay for them to grow spiritually? Some of you would pull out a check and if it was a guarantee, you would, you would put several zeros in that check for that person to come to know Christ, for that person to, to grow in their faith, for that person to make decisions consistent with who they are in Christ. You would, you would put a lot of zeros. We, we do this all the time. We invest in our kids going to camp. We invest in our kids going on mission trips. We, we invest in these things because we have this belief that if we could just invest in the right things, that they might grow spiritually. Friends, we have a desire within us to see our friends grow. This passage lets us know that there's a cost that we can pay so that our friends grow, and it's that our ethics would be influenced by the effect they have in the lives of others. Not just writing a check with zeros on it, but making a decision to restrict what I drink or what I eat or what I say, or what I listen to, or what I watch, or what I wear, or where I go, in some ways, in order to love my friend who might be tempted to sin as a result of the liberty that I have. Friends, we are called to not tear down what Christ is building up you may feel like I've been sufficiently vague in my presentation today. And you may think that Paul has been sufficiently vague in his examples today. But I think that's by design. Because the gray areas in your life are different than the gray areas in my life in, the, in terms of the things that you're dealing with. But here's the deal. We are all called to have a category in our decision-making that involves a love of others instead of just what will serve me and my desires. Now, we're going to, to end our service today by having an extended time of worship while we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to do that in a little bit of a unique way to highlight some of the, the facts that we um, have talked about today from God's Word. And so, as we begin to make this transition, I'm going to invite our worship team to come up and I'm going to invite the, the team that's going to help us serve our communion to come up. Um, and I'm going to explain how we're going to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. So we're, we're going to come forward for communion today. And, and if you have trusted Christ in your, as your Savior, uh, we invite you to come and participate in this meal today, whether that is a decision that you've made this morning or whether that's a decision that you have made years ago. If you have trusted Christ in your Savior, you're, uh, you're welcome to join us at this table. And we're going to to come up, and we have four individual tables here at the front. And as you come up down the middle aisle, uh, you'll go, everybody on on this side of the room will come to one of these two tables, on this side of the room to one of these two tables, and you will just circle up around that table. And then after you circle up, you will reach and you will grab uh, the bread, which is symbolic of the body of Christ, which is broken for us, and you will grab the cup, symbolic of the blood of Christ, which is shed for us, And then when everybody has gotten those elements and everybody is circled around the table, you will partake of those elements together. And then you'll go back down the outside. Why are we doing that today? We're doing that today because as you gather, what will you see across the table? Someone for whom Christ died. We are called to love one another and we will remember that with the love of Christ a reminder of that love sitting right between us. We would not tear down what Christ is building up. And so we'll partake of communion in that way, coming up the center aisle and back down the outside. And while we're doing all of that, we will be singing um, songs together. Um, At the very beginning of our time, we'll pass our offering and then we'll begin to invite you to come forward um, a wave at a time uh, for communion. So let let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together today and to celebrate this this meal. Celebrate this meal not as an individual, but as a congregation. Celebrating together what you have done for us in Christ. Father, I pray that you would just allow us as we partake of this meal together, um, just to remember all that you have done for us in Christ. And that you would orient our lives not towards pursuing liberties ourselves, but towards loving others as the Spirit works within us. Not in the externals only, but in the eternals as it flows through the internal of our life. Father, thank you for this meal today and this opportunity to be together. We pray these things in Jesus' name.